0: You may be seated, if you would, turn to John chapter 1, John 1. Today we are going to examine what I think may be the most significant sentence that's been written in the history of the world, and there's been a lot of them. I think those are, every sentence in Scripture is valuable, but maybe one of the most significant Scriptures in the New Testament is what we will look at today in John chapter 1, verse 14. It is full of perspective. Um, about who God is. It's it's all about our joy, um, His understanding of us, and and how we are to walk in a relationship um, with Him. And so we're going to talk today about the Incarnation, which is God becoming man, taking on flesh. And we're going to look at the significant things connected with that. Let's put all of this together. Um, John doesn't mention the name Jesus until verse 17, and so we will not officially hear the word jesus from john until um, next week i told this to the first service if you're wanting us to rush through chapter one i'm sorry we're putting the brakes on really hard today uh, we're going to be in one verse that's it and so uh, uh there's just a lot here really really significant so let's put all of this together on um, where we've been this is our fourth week john one verse one in the beginning was the word and word was with god and the word was god He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him, not not anything was made without him that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came as a witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world and he was in the world and the world was made through him and yet the world did not know him and he came to his own and his own people did not receive him but to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor the will of man but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's read 14 again. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. All right. So this subject matter today, in talking about Christ becoming man, is... In some aspects, maybe the most significant thing that has ever happened. This had to happen. Rain, Wayne Grudem, in his book on systematic theology, wrote this. It is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible. Far more amazing than the resurrection or more amazing than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join himself To a human nature forever, so that the infinite God became one person with finite man, will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all of the universe. And I believe it is incredibly, incredibly profound for us today to stop down and look at this. And I think that's why the implications that flow out of verse 14 are incredibly significant for us. Today, Now let's talk about this just for a moment before we get into the first point. There are other cultures in the world who have religions and they have gods, little g, that they worship. And some of those gods that these people worship and affirm have, in their minds, come down to the earth and been here. And, but those gods, when they come, are very self-centered, if you know anything about other religions. Those gods came down... For themselves and to use mankind for themselves, our God, who came here, was incredibly different. And the uniqueness of the incarnation with Christ was so significant that I want to just stop for a moment. I want to read one passage of Scripture. You can go ahead and stay where you are. If you want to turn, you can. I want to. I want to. I want to read something out of Matthew nine that I think highlights. The uniqueness of Christianity in Christ in the incarnation with an encounter. So Matthew 9, verse 9 says this. As Jesus passed on from there. Let me just stop there for a moment. That may not sound very significant. As Jesus passed on from there. But think about that for a moment. This eternal God was on the earth and was passing by. And you could see Him. So as Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to Matthew... Follow me, and he rose and he followed him. Now, that is unbelievable. Think about this for a moment. Here's Matthew. He spent his life, he's a Jew, he's now ro- working for Rome, he's a tax collector. He's likely taking more money than he should. He's sitting there, the treasure of his life has been things of this earth. Jesus comes walking by and says to this man, Hey, come follow me. Matthew didn't do this. He didn't take out some of his tax paper and go, okay, I'm going to divide the column here and I'm going to write, okay, pros of going with this guy and cons of going with this guy. It just says this. He just got up and he left all that was his treasure, all of his identity. What was his occupation? And he just left it and he began to follow Jesus. And I love this reality that God calls people From their pagan, sinful life to have something that they never even thought about was even possible. The appearance is in Matthew 9 that a little bit later, Jesus likely is at Matthew's house. Do you know what kind of friends pagans people have? They have pagan friends. And they do pagan things. And Jesus is right in the middle of all these people. Listen to what it says. but sinners. And I tell you, I read that over and over this week and I just want to say hallelujah that God does this with people like Matthew. That God steps into places where there's, it's, it's full of dark people and He just begins to bring people from the darkness back into the light. Not back into the light, but into the light for the very first time. This is what our God is like. He's not a God who came here and He walked around just zapping people to bow at his feet he came to serve and we'll talk about that here in a little bit and that's why when we talk about Christianity and all the unique things about it that's different from all the other religions and faith of the world one of the unique things is that God the eternal pre-existent self-existent co-existent God which John 1 1 affirms came here took on flesh and he came here to serve people like you and me He didn't come to be a king, put a crown on his head, and live in a palace with fancy clothes and great food. He never had a home. Growing up, he did. But his adult life, he did his ministry. He had this unique encounter one day, and he says, somebody said, I want to follow you. And he says, okay, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but me, the Son of Man, I don't have a home. So if you're going to follow me, we're homeless. But you'll have life far greater than anything that you have ever known. So let's talk about, the implications of John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What does that mean to us? And the first thing it means is simply this, in the first part of 14, the Word became flesh. In other words, God took on flesh. God took on flesh. Now let me just deal with what was going on 2,000 years ago. When this stuff was being written, John's writing this sometime between 80, 85 and 95. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have already been established. They've been around a while. So, John, uh, they probably were written sometime in the 50s, AD, you know, maybe 55, 54 AD. And so, um, somewhere around um, 40 to 50 years later, John is writing this. And so this understanding that Jesus came, he was the God-man, he was 100% God, 100% man, had been around for a while, and so John is unpacking a little bit more for us. And so John says, this eternal, um, significant, magnificent God who's self-existent, he came and he took on flesh. Now to a Greek 2,000 years ago, this was hard to compute for them. The Greeks divided the spiritual from the physical. And so that's why in Greek and Roman culture, you could do whatever you wanted to immorality and it was okay because it was separate from the spiritual. And so they separated these things. And so when they come along and they have this message, God took on flesh to the Greek mindset. In many ways, that was difficult because because of what they believed about the body and the spirit. But the unique thing about the Jewish mindset was this. The Jews had come to know this, that guess where God meets you? He meets you in the earthiness and the grittiness of life, that there's not a separation for that, but where it's tough and where it's difficult, God meets you there, and he does some significant things. If you don't believe that, let me just give you one example. David has killed a husband, he's committed adultery, and she's pregnant. he's hiding it. The Nathan the prophet comes and confronts David over his sin. And it comes out in the open, and if you'll read Psalm chapter 51, and you will see how God meets us in the gritty brokenness of our lives when we have messed up our lives, that even in the midst of that, God comes and God meets us in those moments. So here's what is important for us to see, that though 2,000 years ago, to the Jewish mindset, they understood this. They knew the Messiah was going to come. That was promised in Genesis 3.15. To the Greeks, it was... More of a step for them to kind of get there but but this reality John wants us to know is that God took on flesh this eternal God took on flesh now let me just let me just touch on a few things from the New Testament that affirm the eternal nature of Jesus, and then I want to talk about the human nature of Jesus. but before we do that want to I want to point this out Hayden Hayden who is Hayton i have no idea who he is, but anyway. Satan hates the doctrine of the incarnation. And here's why Satan hates it. It marked his defeat and his doom that Christ came and paid this price. And so he hates it. So guess what he's been doing for the past 2,000 years? Attacking this. And so that's why you have groups like uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and Christian scientists, um, Universalists or Universalism. Um, You have all of those things that have have attempted to say that Jesus wasn't fully God or fully man. And our faith affirms these two great realities. Throughout church history, there have been church councils, and many of these church councils early on, particularly uh, the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., uh, Constantinople in 381 A.D., and then in Chalcedon in 451 A.D., they were all mainly put together to deal with heresies about the humanity and the deity of Jesus, And so these councils are put together to protect the church and to bring um, some, some unity about uh, this truthful doctrine in the Scripture. So let me just share just a few verses with you. In John chapter 8, beginning in verse 53, um, Jesus is having a conversation with the Jews, and this is how it goes. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And so Jesus answered them, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, and of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him, Jesus said. I know him. And if I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar because I do know him. And I keep his word. In verse 56, it says, Your father Abraham, this is, I mean, this is about to blow the Jewish mindset here. Jesus says this, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it and was glad. And they're like, whoa, wait a minute. And so they say to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they wanted to kill him for that. And I could share multiple New Testament passages that affirm this reality that the eternal nature of Jesus is he was 100% God. At our houses, you can pull out a cabinet probably in your bathroom and there's a cylinder that has these wipes in there, Clorox wipes. And it will say on the outside, kills 99.9% of germs. I don't know why we can't get 100%, but we can't. And I want to say this to us this morning. When we're talking about the eternal nature of God being put in a body, we're not talking about Jesus was in that because He had flesh. Now He's just 80% God and He's all man, but he's that He is never less. He's not a fraction. There's no decimals with Jesus. He's 100% God. He's a 100% man and it's the most amazing thing that has ever happened in the world. And he came here and he came to serve and he came to give his life as a ransom. So not only is there this affirmation of the eternal nature of Jesus, there's this amazing thing. This, watch this, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, so he's, he's pre-existent before anything was. He's just, God he didn't have a beginning he's not going to have an end and the word was with God he's coexistent with the father the word was with God and then John makes this affirmation and the word was and that word was is not past tense it means continuing in nature and the word was continuing in nature so Jesus is God this eternal pre-existent all powerful magnificent God all of that who the writer in the scripture Paul says I think it's Paul one of the guys in the New Testament. He said, God dwells in unapproachable light. All of that, watch this, was put into about eight pounds and eight ounces in Bethlehem one night. That's an amazing miracle. Eternal God, born as a baby boy, grew up to go there, the hope of the gospel that you and I would be rescued from our sin. So not only is he eternal, but he's also human. And this word became means to step into history. So it doesn't mean that he didn't exist and now all of a sudden he exists in Bethlehem. No, he he had always existed, but now he's stepped into history and you could see him. The eternal perfection of God in that he added the perfect humanity in a body. And so in the incarnation, we have the eternal perfection of God in a human body, which is a perfect body because it is sinless. Now, I want to deal with some things here before we move on that I think are really um, important. If you have, um, well, hopefully you have your Bible. Go to 1 John just for a moment, and then we'll get back to John chapter 1. Go to 1 John chapter 4. If you don't know where that is, last book is revelation just go to the left about 3 books or you'll find 1 John chapter 4 i want to i want to i want us to look at two verses here that i think are really important 1 John 4 well, let's put it all together go to verse 1 beloved do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from god For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And by this you know the Spirit of God, that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the what? What does it say? In the flesh, as a man with a body, is from God. Look at three. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world Already now go back to John chapter one, but let's let's talk about this just for a moment. So so John same writer is saying this if you ever meet anybody and they say this well. Jesus only kind of appeared to be God. That was, that was one of the things that was going on in the first century. They said that he came and he just looked like God, kind of this mirage, this this kind of mirage walking around, this hologram, you know, first century hologram was kind of walking around, but it, but it wasn't really a body, and so, so that was going around. So John, in some ways, may be dealing with that already that was taking place in the first century. But John is saying this, if you ever meet anybody who says that Jesus was not fully man, and he was not fully God, then they are talking about a completely different Jesus than the biblical Jesus. And so John says that. Anybody who says that Christ hasn't come in in the flesh who says that they are not from God. He came. He was here. Now I want to deal with something that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, and it's it's, uh, led to some heretical things within the church uh, throughout history, and it's what you see in Philippians chapter 2. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he, watch this, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, what's happened throughout the history of the church is this phrase, emptied himself. People have used this to say this, that when he became a man... He, he emptied Himself. He was less than what He was before He became a man. So, yeah, He was God, but He wasn't fully God because all of the attributes and characteristics of God um, weren't there. No, 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 that is not what the Scripture teaches. Watch this. There are aspects of the divinity and humanity of Jesus in the incarnation that Jesus watched He did not cease being, but he did not use some of those attributes while he was here. He was not omnipresent. He was in, if he was in Jericho, where's he at? He's in Jericho. Was he omnipresent? Yes. But for a limited time, that was the case. Here's another one. Before he came here, the angels in heaven could not stop saying this. Could not stop saying this, holy, 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 holy. And now he's down here on earth, and nobody's saying that. They're hating him, mocking him, religious leaders. So he gave up the rightful reality to be worshipped here. So watch this: in the incarnation, he is never less God than he was before. The Father and the Son, before Jesus came to Bethlehem, didn't have a conversation and go, okay, you're going to have to lay aside some of your attributes, so we're going to put them in a box. We're going to keep them in a locker in the men's locker room up here in heaven so that when you ascend, you come back, we'll take them out of the box and you can get some of your attributes back. No. When He came, every single attribute of Jesus in this body was present, but in great humility... He took on the nature of a servant and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient, obedient to death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So listen to what Paul said. This is still going on. This gets me excited, so if you get excited, just hang with me here. Get excited with me. Paul writes something fascinating in the book of Colossians. So Jesus ascends... They're out by the Sea of Galilee and everybody's gathered around and He's lifted off the ground. This body is lifted off the ground. He disappears into the clouds and He goes and He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Well, when He gets to heaven, does He become a spirit? Or does He stay the God-man? Well, listen to what Paul says. I think Revelation 5 answers this and Paul answers this. This is Colossians 2.9. For in Christ, Paul writing this after the ascension of Jesus, for in Christ, All of the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So watch this. Amazing. He's in heaven now. Is he a wispy spirit up there? No. He's the God-man who has scars on his side, his head, his hands, and his feet. John, in Revelation 5, the Father's on the throne. He's got the title deed to the earth. And they look. Who's worthy to take the scroll of the title deed? Nobody in heaven, nobody on, under the earth, nobody in the earth is worthy. And John starts weeping. And an angel comes over and says, hang on, dude, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. And he looks and he sees a lamb standing. And he saw that the lamb had been slain. What did John see? He saw the scars. So watch this. This is glorious. So when this eternal, all-powerful, unapproachable light, all-glorious, pre-existent, co-existent, self-existent God put himself in a body, he's staying in that body for forever. And we're going to get to see that body one day. I can't, I can't wait. I can't wait to see my Jesus and I can't wait to see the scars. And so, so John is saying, I want to tell you, God took on flesh, and not only did, he did this eternal God take on flesh, but He, but he was also this eternal God in this amazing miracle. And He will be that way forever, and we will see the glory of who He is. And it's this amazing thought today that we're going to get to see the glorious nature, this One who, who's, who is light And He's the light of men and when He shines darkness, can't stay around and yet He's approachable. And you could see Him and you could talk to Him. And this amazing reality of Christ was incredible. So so John says, He took on flesh. And then he says this, and then God dwelled among us. When He took on flesh, He dwelled among us. And so when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, this word Dwelled here means to pitch a tent somewhere. Blocks like to go camping. I know other people like to go camping. You go somewhere and you pitch a tent on the ground. You throw it up and you do it. It's, and so, so it says this, that for a brief time in a body, God pitched his tent. He tabernacled here on the earth. He was a sojourner just passing through the earth here. He dwelled among us. There's... Lots of foreshadowing with this idea of tabernacle among us about going back to the Old Testament tabernacle. Where it was this amazing reality that as they traveled around in the, in the desert, they would, that God would say, stop. They would put up the tabernacle. And God had been leading them during the day by cloud and at night he, he leads them by this pillar of fire. And they stop and watch this when they would set up the tabernacle here, all around the tabernacle, the tribes were told specifically where they were to camp. And so they would put up their tents around this. And so in the middle of the of the people in the desert, the tabernacle would be there, and you'd have all the people around there, and everything within the tabernacle pointed to the coming and the glory of Jesus. And so all of that, and, and, and so so at night you would see the pillar of fire. At day there would be a cloud. Moses would go out. Exodus 33 tells us this: that Moses would go out to the tent of meeting, and this this cloud would come down, and God would meet with Moses, and they would talk face to face, and Joshua would go in, and the people would stand at the entrances of their tent and they would worship um, when this was happening and taking place but now John says I'm not talking about Old, Ta- Old Testament tabernacle I'm talking about this God's now in a body and he's just walking all over Israel you could go out and hear Him out there on the shore he's teaching out there he's hanging out with some fishermen and former tax collectors and he's raising people from the dead um, demons talk to him because they know who he is he casts out the demons. There are dead people that are there. And he speaks to the dead people. And these dead people come alive. They, he tells the lepers to do stuff. And he cures their leprosy. And all of a sudden, you see this glorious reality in the first century. God in a body is walking around on people. And you could go see him. He dwelled among people. And so just as it was in the Old Testament tabernacle, God's glory was now walking on the earth. Not only was God's glory walking on the earth, but just as it was with the Old Testament tabernacle, the tabernacle would be there, they would camp around him. We are to center our lives around Christ. We are not the point. We are not the point. He's the point. We're the pointers, pointing to the point. And we must center our life. We must center our church around this. Now, if we were to do this next week, we were to come in next week, and I were to say to you, we are no longer going to be called LifePoint Fellowship. Um, We're going to be called this. And some of you would go, who made that decision? And we'd get all mad about it. And I would say to you, stop it. We're about one name, and it ain't LifePoint Fellowship. It's Jesus. He is to be the center of everything. One name matters. And just as it was with the Old Testament tabernacle, they would, they would offer sacrifices and they would draw near to worship. But only one person once a year could go into the Holy of Holies. Now, guess what we get to do? We are the temple. And we get to draw near through the curtain that was opened. That is, as Hebrew says, His flesh and we now can come and draw near. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So not only did God take on flesh, not only did God dwell among us, but thirdly, God revealed his glory in the incarnation when he was here now it must have been amazing in the old testament when god would come down and god would just pillar of fire can you imagine I, you know let's be honest some days in our life here in the new testament period wouldn't it be easier like okay god can you just not can you just give me a pillar of fire at night and tell me where to go and, you know just much easier god you know to do that that, that must have been amazing to watch a cloud lead you knowing that it was God leading you during the day. And then you're going at night, and there's a fire lighting your way, protecting you, and He's protecting you, assuring you, my presence is with you. I'm showing you. Now John says, that Shekinah glory of the Old Testament tabernacle, which was amazing in many, many senses, God, John is saying this, that Shekinah glory is in Capernaum today. And he's teaching at the synagogue. That Shekinah glory of God is wrapped in a body. And he's so tired that he's sleeping. That, and a storm comes up. And he's sleeping through the storm. That they have to go literally wake Jesus up. He's a man. He's a man. He's tired. Sleeping. And then he, by the way, stands up and says, stop it. And it stops it. Because he can speak to the wind and the waves and command them. So as he was here, not only did he take on flesh, not only did he dwell among us, but he Jesus revealed the glory of God. And, and we could we could talk about a lot of different things here. I have pages upon pages, and we're not going to deal with them, but I've got them in here if I ever want to deal with them eventually down the road. But just three statements, let me just make three statements. When Jesus was here, he revealed the glory of God, and he did it, a number of ways so he was here he manifested the glory of God he is God he revealed the glory of the father as well here's how about here's one of them Lazarus illness was for the glory of God John 11:4 when Jesus heard it he said this illness does not lead to death it is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it So the glory that was on Jesus, that clung to Jesus, that was there, it shone through him. This is the very glory of God as he was walking around. So one, he manifested the glory of God in the incarnation. Secondly, his glory was not borrowed glory. It was his own glory. Listen to this, upper room, John 17, 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And he's saying this. In that prayer, I had glory before anything was created. And I've emptied myself. I've, there's some limitations by me being in a body now. But let's set it loose. Let's set it loose. Let's. And so, Lord, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you. So it wasn't borrowed glory. It was his own, thirdly. He gave his glory to his disciples. John 17, 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. And that happens with us as well. I love that last song. What's that last song called? we sing? Whatever that's called. What is it? Christ alone, Christ alone. I love that. It's just the gospel to music. Um, I love it. Um, And I experienced Christ a while ago. Seeing Him, thinking about His nature, thinking about who He is, thinking about the cross. And so we get to experience that glory as He gave it to the disciples in the upper room. We get to experience that now in this relationship with Him. And probably, John is referring here that we have seen His glory, the glory as of, of the only Son from the Father. He's t- probably talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. Where they're up on the mountain... And the glory of Christ just was revealed through His clothing. And when they're up on the mountain, they saw the fame of heaven coming out of a frame of a man. And it was an amazing thing um, that they saw. They got a little taste of this glorious nature that had been wrapped in this body of Jesus. So, He came, took on flesh... He dwelled among us. He revealed God's glory. And fourthly, He is the God full of grace and truth. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So let's talk about what does it mean that Jesus is full of grace and and truth. It means this. Full means what? Full. What does full mean? Does it mean three quarters? Does it mean two thirds? Fifteen sixteenths? No. Full means full. He's full God, full man, full glory, fully God. Here he is. There are no fractions to describe him. None. And when it talks about He's full of grace and He's full of truth, it is saying this, that this is the reality. This is who He is. It's not mostly He's this. But you know, nowadays, a man, He can't really fully be God because how in the world can that happen? Well, because it's a miracle and only God can do that. So He's full of all of that. And God in Christ displays His blessed actions to us. Watch this in two magnificent ways, in grace and in truth. And these words describe what I think are absolutely critically important for us to understand about Jesus and His coming in the flesh. John, again writing much later than the other gospel writers, only uses the word grace in these 21 chapters in this epilogue of John chapter 1. He doesn't use it, the rest. Once we get past verse 17, the word grace is not used anymore. And here's what I think John does, because I think Paul is writing about grace everywhere. Um, not only is Paul writing about grace everywhere, uh, other writers are. Um, the gospel writers have, have done that as well. And here's, here's the reality about things. I think John is spending the rest of this book saying, let me tell you what grace and truth looks like. And I think the rest of the book of John is this unfolding of this reality about Jesus. Why are these two together? Why does does John put grace and truth together? Well, here's why. The only way to experience grace is to know the truth. It's the only way. The only way to experience the grace of God is to know the truth and believe the truth. So they have to go together. And so Jesus reveals And points out our problem, it's sin, speaks the truth, you've got to come to me. And so in grace, he speaks the truth, you've got to come to me. But in grace, he becomes the solution to the problem, to the truthful reality. We're separated, God's holy, God's awesome, God's great. We are not, he's the point, we are not the point. He is fully God, he's the only hope for us. And so we have everything against us, everything against us. Our sin is so big, the gap is so large between us and God, and so that's the truthful reality. So in Christ, through grace, He becomes the solution to this great issue. So let's talk about full of grace just for a moment. How do you define grace? Here's how you can define grace. Grace is the unmerited favor of God at work toward undeserving sinners grace is the unmerited favor of god at work toward undeserving sinners ultimately grace is a word about god it is seen in god's initiating all of this work for us on our behalf grace is the opposite of karma which our world talks about karma all the time here's what karma means karma means you get what you deserve grace is you get what you don't deserve which one do you want I think I want to get what I don't deserve because I think that's amazing. I understand that there's consequences to that, but the world only operated, you're going to get what you deserve. Grace steps in in truth and says this, hey, I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. You didn't earn it. You didn't merit it. You didn't you couldn't do anything good enough to do it. You're not important enough. You can't have enough money for it. But here's what I've done. I'm doing this. I'm giving myself to you. In grace And fundamentally, grace is a person. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God has appeared. How did it appear? It appeared in Jesus, bringing salvation to all people. Now, connected to Christ, let me say this. Grace is more than just a feeling God has. It gets all warm and fuzzy about us. And, oh, that Mark Donahoe, I just love him. He just warms my heart when I think about Mark. I don't feel that way about you, but maybe God does anyway. So grace, watch this, grace is more than just a feeling on God's part that motivates him to move in love toward us, because he does in grace. But grace is also a power that shatters who we used to be and makes us somebody totally new. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. You're a new creation. Nicodemus, you got to be born again. Can't continue the way you are. You got to be born again. So God does this great work in grace. He's full of it, and He gives it toward undeserving people. Tozer said this about grace grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines Him to, to bestow benefits. On the undeserving. Spurgeon said, In the person of Jesus Christ, the immeasurable grace of God is treasured up. So not only is he full of grace, he's full of truth. And just as grace ultimately is a person, so is truth. Truth is something that's settled, truth is something that doesn't change. And so when you talk about truth, it has to be attached to Jesus. Because He is the one who is faithful and true. He is the only one who is that. In Christ's generation, it was full of pretense and just hollowness everywhere. But in Christ, the fullness of God dwelled in bodily form. And it will be that way for all of eternity. And the most glorious picture of truth and grace comes to His fulfillment at the cross. This beauty there, grace and truth, reach their culmination At the cross where the truth of God's holiness, his demand for justice had to be had to be taken care of. And they were satisfied in the death of Jesus as he was on the cross as the only perfect substitute to die for our sin. So now, because he's the only one, what does he offer? He offers grace. Those who don't deserve this, they get offered this. We talked about it a lot, months and months ago. It's called imputation and double imputation. And it's a, it's a Latin word that the, the reformers used um, in accounting. And it me- meant this, to take something from one account and move it into another account. And so in salvation, this is what happens. He takes the stuff in our account, and on the cross it was put into His account. And then what was in his account, now in salvation as we are born children of God, we get in his account, which is all righteousness, and we get his righteousness. He takes our sin, we get his righteousness. And as best man can do, we spell it grace. And there's not enough words to describe it. In any language, Greek language, Hebrew language, English language, any language, there's not enough words to do it. The meeting of grace and truth at the cross is amazing. So the grace of God is all truth, and the truth of God is all gracious. And it's an amazing reality. And I think one of the most significant verses that defines this for us is this. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins will surely die. But God demonstrates His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's grace. There's nobody in the room who deserves that. But through Christ, it is offered to us. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace And truth, full of grace and full of truth. See, God's speaking to us through our electronic devices. Do you hear that today? Does that move the needle with anybody today? Does that move you? This is why this sentence here probably is the most significant sentence that has ever been written. Because the understanding of it communicates this God moved heaven and earth to rescue us, undeserving people. And there needed to be an adequate sacrifice that was perfect. Jesus fulfilled the law. He fulfilled all of it. So he becomes that. He got our sin tragic. Good news for us. We got his righteousness. And the good news is he was the only one who could bear our sin, and so we should praise His name. There's one name, 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 and it's the name Jesus. It's not Life Point Fellowship. It's not Doc Taylor. It's not Billy Graham. It's not John Bunyan. It's not whoever you want to throw out that loves the Lord. There is one name, and it's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray.